Hi, David. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, David. So I'm going to, David, I'm going to introduce everyone and then I'll introduce you. And then we're going to take turns. Uh, each person will pose questions and they'll just go round and round. And, and it's just conversation style. So feel free if anyone has a comment or question during it, you know, feel free to chime in as you wish. It's just okay. the goal is to just put great information, helpful information out there, compassionate, informative, and supportive. Um, we have three incredible organizations on. So I wanted to welcome everyone. Our panelists today are Kathy C. Hutter, Director of Online Services for Compassionate Friends, Sam Dexter, Manager of Spiritual Care for Regional Hospice and Palliative Care, and Katie Chambers, uh, Regional Sales Director for Care Hospice and Holistic Care Hospice. And our special featured guest today is David Kessler. David Kessler is the world's foremost expert on grief. His experience with thousands of people on the edge of life and death has taught him the secrets to living a fulfilled life, even after life's tragedies. He co-authored On Grief and Grieving and Life Lessons with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and You Can Heal Your Heart, Finding Peace After a Breakup, Divorce, or Death with Louise Hay. He's the author of Finding Meaning, Visions, Trips, in Crowded Rooms, and the Needs of the Dying, praised by Mother Teresa. David's work has been featured in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Business Week, and Life Magazine, and on many different television shows. David has served on the Red Cross Aviation Disaster Team and has volunteered for decades as a Los Angeles Police Department Specialist Reserve Officer. He lectures for physicians, nurses, counselors, police, and first responders, and leads talks and retreats for those dealing with grief. Today he's speaking about his newest book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. In this groundbreaking new work, he journeys beyond the classic five stages to discover a sixth stage, which is meaning. So I want to welcome David and all our panelists, and we're going to start with Kathy, and then turn to Sam, and then Katie. And you could continue to pose questions and speak in that order. So, uh, Kathy, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you so much. Um, well, I'm with Compassion Friends, and I was just asked a little bit ago, what is Compassion Friends? And uh, for, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a peer-to-peer -peer support group for those who have had a child or a sibling or a grandchild die at any age and of any cause. We have approximately 600 chapters around the USA and a very strong online uh, presence with over 35 private um, Facebook groups. Uh, we have an online chat and we continue to add more and more uh, different uh, categories to our, to our Facebook uh, groups. It's usually because of the relationship of the person who died, uh, you know, we may have, you know, loss of a child, loss of a grandparent, but we also have things that are more specific, such as a sudden death, long-term illness, suicide, um, substance-related causes, that sort of thing. And uh, 
But I can tell you the Compassion Friends, uh, for me and for the hundreds of thousands of other people who have been helped by them, um, it had actually, I would say, saved my life. It became a lifesaver for me. And, um, oh, my goodness. And as I told, just told the other panelists, uh, that's what, what brought me to Compassion Friends in the first place. I had not heard of it before until the funeral director uh, for my daughter uh, back in 1995 I lost my 15-year-old daughter, Nina, to a drunk driver. We were vacationing in Florida, and uh, we were just coming back from a day at Daytona Beach and uh, my birthday, and uh, we were just three-quarters of a mile from our destination, which was to celebrate my birthday at a dinner in Kissimmee, and uh, a drunk driver fell asleep at the wheel and crossed the medium and uh, hit exactly where my daughter was sitting in the back seat, and she was killed instantly. Uh, my husband was driving, my 12-year-old son was in the back seat with my daughter, and I was also in the crash. And that uh, was, I, I, you know, I really, even all these years, find it hard to put into words. Obviously life-changing, devastating. At even 50 years old, that little girl was my best friend. And uh, and that's what led me to the Compassion Friends in the first place, is that my Nina died very, very suddenly and uh, tragically. And then seven years ago, my son, who was 39 years old, a St. Paul police officer, uh, actually the job of his dreams uh, took his own life um, from PTSD and numerous other things that we were not aware of. And uh, so there again, uh, I've been with Compassion Friends for many, many years. And uh, first of voluntary, I'm actually chapter leader of the St. Paul, Minnesota chapter. I'm regional coordinator for the state of Minnesota. I served on the board of directors, national board of directors for six years, um, chaired two national conferences, one in um, Minneapolis and one in St. Louis. And uh, now I actually work for Compassion Friends. I still do all my volunteer things, but I am, as uh, was said, I'm director of online services and uh, Yep, Compassion Friends is my passion, and uh, and Compassion Friends is where I found meaning in life again after the death of my children. Kathy, what would you like to ask David? Well, first of all, David, um, we met because last year we were very so very fortunate to have David be one of our keynote speakers at our national conference held in Philadelphia last year. And so we had conversations beforehand because I'm part of putting conferences together. And uh, David, this book, um, this book is life-changing for me. And I don't mean to gush, but um, you can imagine 25 years, I've read a lot a lot of grief books in my days working with other grief families. And this one, um, I don't know, it's probably one of the best I've ever read. And I'm so thank thank you for that. I, the one thing I want to bring up with it is that, you know, interestingly, 
um, the five stages of grief that you wrote with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross back then, I used to spend my time arguing that, you know, they were never written for people grieving. And it was interesting to me that when I read your book, that it sounds like that it was meant that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross reached out to you to make them be adaptive to, um, to grief as well. So how do you, I, I, I'm just wondering, how do you see, um, oh my goodness, could you explain a little bit on how you incorporated the two? Is, is, it, is it changed in some way? You know, how did you adapt it for the grieving part of it uh, versus uh, the dying people who are, are terminally ill? Well, Kathy, first of all, it's so good to talk to you. I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours also and, uh, and oh. your work. And um, I would obviously send people to Compassionate Friends as a grief specialist. Um, little did I know I would actually be using their services myself and someday be a keynote. Um, so let me go back and answer your question because it's an important one that gets asked a lot. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the stages, Denial, Anger, Bargaining, Depression, Acceptance, in 1969 in her book on death and dying. Her and I uh, had become friends and worked together on a book, and I used to say to her all the time, you know, Elizabeth, people are adapting those stages, they're, you know, they're making it a map, etc., and um, it took her a long time, and one day she said, all right, got to clear this up. And we wrote on grief and grieving and adapted the stages for grief. But we literally said on page one, they're not a map. Your grief is as unique as your fingerprint. There's no right way to do grief. These stages do not have to be done in order. They're not sequential. They're not tidy. You don't finish one and move to the next. And we really tried to clear that up. Literally, we addressed a lot of the issues on page one. And I'll tell you, it's been shocking since her death to still watch the misunderstandings that happen around them. And I'll tell you, Elizabeth was a messy organic, rule-breaking person. <laughs> and on Facebook sometimes people will say, oh, you and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross are just trying to make us follow rules and make our grief neat, which, oh my gosh, <laughs> is so far from the truth. I mean, as you know from your losses and I know from mine, there's nothing neat about grief um, or tidy about grief. And uh, Elizabeth would be appalled that people think, you know, these are like a map you have to follow. That's never what her or I ever intended. And I also, when I wrote this new book, Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief, it was a chance because, you know, you can just be on the mountaintop saying, oh, those books were written and, you know, they're being misinterpreted. But mm -hmm. a new book you get to revisit and try to clear things up. And it was one more opportunity to not only talk about acceptance is not a finality. There's no finality in grief. And to talk and clear up a lot of the misconceptions about the stages. 
So it's a great question. I'm so glad you brought it up, Kathy. Well, thank you for that, David. I mean, this really, really made a huge difference to me. I thought, oh, my goodness, okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. And no, it's not tidy. Uh, it's not tidy, and it's not. And um, that was very, very eye-opening for me. And thank you, thank you, thank you. I love, And I love the fact you have a six-stage perfect. So thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy, and thank you for sharing. And Sam, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. Oh, thank you. Excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> you caught me at a bad moment. I'm getting over cold. Sorry. Um, thank you so much for having me on, and thank you so much <coughs> for sending along a copy of your book. I really, really appreciated it, particularly coming from uh, spiritual care and hospice, because so much of what uh, what we do in spiritual care every day is uh, is precisely helping people to make meaning. Um, in their suffering uh, and to find places where there's hope and meaning and comfort that can come even when there are painful situations. And I felt that you expressed so much of that uh, so clearly and well. Um, For those of us uh, who do this kind of work every day, I think we're very familiar, of course, with your work and uh, and with the five stages. Um, But for those who are listening uh, who might not be, I, I wondered if you might be able to give us just a little bit of an overview of the five stages of grief and uh, and how your book contributes to that with the sixth stage. Well, I certainly felt after the loss of my own son that um, I wanted more. There was no way I was going to be stopping at acceptance. I just thought there has to be more than this. And... Uh, As you know, having read the book, I I really wanted to make sure, not only talking about my own grief, but coming out of working at hospice and palliative care myself, I really wanted to make sure I had a chapter in the book on the meaning that we make when we're dying, because just like you said, that's what you do all the time, and I really wanted to make sure that I didn't just talk about meaning as something that happens after death, but I wanted people to know that meaning uh, happens as we're dying, and it's really the wonderful work that just so many people in the world do who work in hospice and palliative care all the time every day. Well, thank you. Um, I was... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sam. That's okay. I just, um, you know, I wanted to to ask, uh, uh, though, if, um, you know, perhaps you might be able to just briefly um, describe the the five stages and uh, and the six six stage and and how that for for those who are listening who might not be familiar with them. Sure. The stages are, and remember, it doesn't doesn't have to be in order. Um, they are denial which is the shock, the disbelief that we have when someone dies. And it's a healthy coping mechanism is denial. Uh, There's also anger, that we get angry that our loved one is dying or has died. There's bargaining, that's all the what-ifs and if-onlys and regrets. Um, Before someone dies, it's the deal-making. If I... You know, if I go to church every day, if I become a better husband, will you give my wife five more years? 
and uh, depression, which is really the sadness that we have after someone dies or when someone is dying, and then acceptance. But I always caution people, you know, there's not one big acceptance that we find. It's uh, just countless little moments of acceptance that take a long, long time. And I even know for myself that, you know, I swing back and forth between making meaning around my son's death and still trying to accept it. I mean, these stages overlap a lot. So after my own son died, I just felt like there has to be more, there has to be meaning. And that's when I really thought about this idea of there being a sixth stage, which is meaning. And one of the things I tell people is meaning is not found in the death itself. Meaning is what we do around the loss. It's what we do after the loss. Uh, you know, sometimes people, you know, have seen the book and haven't read it, and they'll go, oh, my loved one was murdered. There's no finding meaning, or my loved one died of cancer. It was this, you know, horrible thing that happened. There's no meaning. And I'll tell people, meaning is what you do after. It's what we do after. And so meaning is what I'm trying to make around my son's death and helping people just I was so um, privileged to get so many wonderful interviews from people who had had a spouse die or a child die, even a pet die, a a sibling die, a parent die, all kinds of losses to help people know that there is more. There is more, and that's meaning. And I was just so honored that the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family and foundation um, gave me permission to add a sixth stage to her iconic stages. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thanks. Okay, Katie. Hi. Hi, David. It's so nice to be to be on here with you today. Um, as uh, Roxanne mentioned, I am a regional sales director for Care Hospice, and I am also uh, an end-of-life doula for Holistic Care Hospice. So a lot of the um, work that I do revolves around, you know, post-grief work, right, reprocessing the death with the families and loved ones. And so for, for people that I, that I encounter that are still stuck in their grief, right, we see this so much in the work that we do day in and day out, what's something that they can do to help them move forward through that, that grief? Well, you're absolutely right that grief is a time we go back and we revisit the death. Did it have to happen that way? What does it mean? Who am I now in the world without them? Is there still a relationship I have with them in their absence? So grief is going back and revisiting all of that. And one of the things I just think is so important is that we understand meaning is a decision we have to make. And it's a very small, subtle decision. One of the things that happened to me that really solidified it, I didn't even realize it at the time, but when my son had died, a friend called me um, and uh, Diane Gray, and Diane Gray was head of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family, and she was also a bereaved parent. And I remember she said to me, 
She said, you're, you are just, I wanted to call you. I wanted to send you love. And I wanted you to know that you are drowning right now. And you're going to be underwater for a long time. And at some point, you are going to hit bottom. And she said, when you hit bottom, you will have a decision to make. Do you stay there or do you swim again? Mm-hmm. And I didn't make a decision in that moment, but it was interesting for her to have planted that seed. Oh, will I ever live again after this moment? Oh, that's a decision I'm going to make. So I like people, I just try to plant seeds that meaning is a decision about living again. And the moment you think about that, all the blocks come up. Can I live again? Is it okay to live again? Is living again disloyal to, is it disloyal to my loved one? Um, What would they want for me? What do I want for me? And one of the other things I like to just clear up is many think, because we've all seen this, that meaning is you're going to do a huge nonprofit organization or you're going to create a run for your loved one. And, of course, meaning can be a big organization. But the reality is meaning is mostly found in moments. It's in those moments that we connect back to our loved ones, that we remember them. And meaning does not take away the pain. Meaning becomes a cushion to the pain. So that's some of my intentions that I tried to bring about in the book. Yeah. I loved your, your, your little story about the stamps with the, with the woman that, um, who did her, her dad loved, was it Danny Thomas? Or she, and she, she found mm-hmm. meaning in using those stamps. You know, it, it, it brought her meaning. Um, and I thought that that was beautiful, something so little but could provide great comfort and meaning for her. And I thought that that was great. Thank you, David. You know, I love that, too. I mean, something, you know, like you say, big, David, you know, big foundations and, you know, walks and runs and all that kind of thing. But something as simple as a stamp, I mean, or wearing an article of clothing, um, just, I mean, it just brings, it brings meaning and brings them close to you. Um, in, in your book, um, my gosh, if you could see my book right now, it's earmarked and it's got post-it notes all over and little notes and, you know, a little quotes. I mean, there are so many things that you said that I, I are going to always resonate with me. And uh, it's almost like I felt that this book was written for me personally, because there were just so many things that spoke to me, and everybody else was going to feel that way about it too. I have so many questions I could tie up your time all day. It was just, uh, it was wonderful. But what I wanted to ask you, David, is, um, you know, you've been working in the world of grief for, you know, literally decades, and then your son, tragically, David, uh, died. And um, how did that, did that change? If anything, what you started um, telling others when you worked with them in grief, where you know you are an extremely compassionate, obviously very compassionate and and wise man, but after David died, you know losing a child, and as we all know, uh, our losses are different. It doesn't mean that one is greater than the other, 
But, you know, losing a child is an unbelievably unspeakable thing. And is there anything that shifted for you when, uh, after David died, when you were talking to other people? Did, did you see anything that was different? It's a great question. So I want to go back to what you first mentioned, then I want to come back to your question. So first of all, you know, I want to say one of the things meaning is, is in our moments. You know, this is a meaningful mm-hmm. moment we're having together. You know, when I went to Kathy's conference, and I went to Kathy's conference, Kathy's conference, and when I went to Compassionate Friends, <laughs> uh, it kind of could be Kathy, but when I went to Compassionate Friends, <laughs> I went one year before I spoke there just as a father. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that compassionate friends do, and I bet the two of you also do in your work, is you're helping people create meaning. I mean, there was just a moment, you know, that that we just have brought a picture of our loved one with us. And, you know, there were things that happened with that picture there. And I'm telling you that that compassionate friend's picture, it turned out to be, you know, just a moment that I had that I had my son with me. And uh, I have so many pictures of my son, but in my backpack, I'm on tour now, I'm doing 30 cities, three countries. That Mm -hmm. picture of my son for compassionate friends is still in my backpack. It was a meaningful moment that you created. And I know that's Mm -hmm. what all of you do. So thank you for that. I just needed to say that that first part. The second part is, gosh, how did I, how did it change me? How did it impact me? Well, first of all, um, I got to see, I mean, I think it's a rare thing that we're plunged into our work as a receiver, you know, I've certainly yeah. just been doing grief yeah. work for mm-hmm. years. And um, I think to go back, you know, I had two minds. I had the father who had a child that had died. And I also had this, this mind that was way on the side that was this grief expert who went, mm-hmm. what's this going to be like for you? Is, is this going to really work? Are things, you know, and I think if anything, it wanted me because I had had, I came, I mean, I, my work came out of a shooting as a child and my mother dying when I was very young. Yeah. So I thought all my grief was behind me. I mean, I knew I'd turn 80 someday and I'd have a lot of friends that would die, but I didn't, I didn't think I would be thrown into the depths of grief that I got thrown into. And I think it just made me have even more compassion for people and how much they are, um, in pain and how, mm-hmm. you know, look, I, I used to say to people, um, go to groups, go, go, go to groups, go to grief counseling. And I would say it like, you know, go get a drink from the fridge. Like it was no big deal. <laughs> and I'll tell yeah. you when I had to go to a group myself, when I had to drive to a compassionate friends group, my, I went, there's too much traffic. I can't go. I'm going to turn the car around, and I live in L.A. There's too much traffic everywhere. Um, Then I remember, I was like, there's nowhere to park. I can't go to group. And then I forced myself in that room, and I had to sit in a room with my books three feet away, and no one knew that was me. No one knew it was me, and I had to 
not be the grief expert, but be the father who had to bury a child. And just to be in the midst of it, it gave me, uh, you know, an even deeper compassion for what people go through, that all of us uh, help every day, you know, and I think viscerally I had not been in it in such a long time. Well, I had loved that part, David. I had loved that part where you talked about that you were in compassion for them, that here you were seeing this group. And you were not David Castor, the grief expert. You were David, the bereaved dad. And, I, and you know, and that's your books were close by. I found that very interesting. I thought I am so glad that you were able to go to that and be David, the bereaved father. Um, it was hard. Because, I mean, I wanted to yeah, sit I'm there sure. and I wanted to lead the group. And I'm like, no, I no, bet. you're 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 not I the bet. leader. You're not the leader. You are the receiver. I'm sure. I know. That's I can believe that to be true. Thank right. you. Thank you. Sam, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, this is a really very interesting conversation. Thanks, everybody. And um, one of the parts of, uh, of the book that I really loved um, was uh, your connection to um, Viktor Frankl uh, and his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is a book that I think a lot of us in this field were inspired by and got us going in, in this kind of work. And uh, you have an idea that you develop um, from Viktor Frankl that I think is so important and, uh, and one that I also use uh, training volunteers and people who want and staff, people who um, are going to be working in hospice care, which is this distinction that you make uh, between pain and suffering. Um, that pain is pain, uh, but suffering is something that has intrinsically a dimension of meaning. Uh, in it. It's, uh, it's an activity of the whole person, including our minds and our spirits, as well as our physical beings. And so that mm -hmm. where pain is inevitable, uh, suffering is something that arises out of our worldview, and therefore we um, have some control over it. Uh, and our, our sense of meaning is so important in relation to how we suffer, as opposed to the painful events and experiences that life might bring our way. So I just thought perhaps you might expand mm -hmm. on that a little bit. Sure. I talk about, and you know, Viktor Frankl, he is, he is the, the, the person who really um, brought so much light onto this world to help us with that through his own experiences. And I think pain, you know, look, I can't take away the pain of anyone's loved one dying, nor is it my place to take away their pain. Their pain is a part of the love. I need to give them the dignity of their pain. Suffering is what our mind does. You know, the reality is um, our minds, and I, and I try to, as you probably noticed, put some brain science in the book. Our minds are very protective in nature. And you would hope that when we come to loss, our minds would be so kind and go, oh, my goodness, you've had a loss. I'm going to be kinder. I'm going to be more compassionate. And so many times our minds turn on us. You know, oh, well, someone, obviously, you weren't a great parent if your child died, or um, how could you be so loving and yet put your loved one in hospice? I mean, our mind does crazy things. And we don't understand that it comes from 
a protective place and that we actually have control over it. And, you know, Viktor Franco, just you would think, wait, wait, all these people are dying in a concentration camp. How can you enjoy a sunrise? And yet he helped us understand that, you know, there is still meaning even in the most horrific moments of our life. And uh, to absolutely and, nurture and that anything that. Is in, anything, yes, and then anything is endurable mm-hmm. with meaning. Correct. Correct. Whereas, whereas right. circumstances mm-hmm. of far greater comfort than a concentration camp can be unendurable without it. And that's also what I've noticed over the years in my work is that people who have found some sort of meaning there does become a cushion for them. It does become a little easier for them. And, you know, meaning isn't a new assignment that we want everyone in grief to go out and do. You have to do it in your own way, in your own time, for yourself. You know, we can't drag our loved ones to therapy and go, quick, find some meaning, you're going to be better. And I think if anything that I've noticed in the book is since it's been out, which has only been a couple of months, is there's people who come up to me and they're like, I can't find meaning, I can't find meaning. Uh, Is your book going to help me find meaning? And I'll go, when did your loved one die? And they'll go, November. And I'll go, November (laughs) November is the day before yesterday. Mm -hmm. Like November Mm -hmm. is the day before Mm -hmm. yesterday. You're not (laughs) going to find meaning right away. And you have to let this happen organically. And yet there's some seeds we can plant. There's some knowledge information. And I think there is something to just have an understanding that meaning is possible. The other thing I love that you said about Victor Frankl also was the portion about how here they were. I think they were going from Auschwitz to and then they were looking through the slats of the train and how their face and their eyes lit, looking at the beauty of the mountains of Salzburg. And, and that just thinking of all that they had been through, and yet they could see that beauty. And I found that in my own self after my daughter Nina died, is that I did not notice nature before. I mean, I know it was there. It's beautiful. Although there's a gorgeous mountain. I'm a big fan of a beautiful, majestic mountain. But I didn't really think about it. But ever since her death and Christopher's, uh, I'm so aware of what's around me. It's My eyes are so open to, uh, you know, a, a cardinal or a, you know, the owl that's say, up the tree in the backyard. And I don't know. It's just, you just, I think you have a hyper awareness of of things around you and nature is one of them and I thought that was a beautiful statement about all the atrocities that these people had been with this concentration type yet they they could still see that beauty that beauty uh, in nature I, I don't know it just really struck me and I think also in the strangest way my son dying gives me a little more permission than I had before to talk about that meaning. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that idea that I'm so clear for me, my son loved my work. My son, a month before he died, was in the back of one of my lectures with his girlfriend, a social worker. And I, I know he would never want his death to constrict my work. He would want it to expand it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's yes. part yeah. of the meaning that I'm trying to do. And, uh, and you know, it's also interesting, and you'll find this as a, as a death doula on here with us, is that, mm-hmm. you know, I talk mm-hmm. about, I can remember years ago in my lecture, one family talked about um, their father had died of this type of cancer, and the whole family got, was gathered, and it was one of the most profound, meaningful moments they had all mm-hmm. being there when he died. And someone else said, well, our father died of the same exact cancer, and it was the most traumatic moment of our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. both died the same way, but one experienced it as meaningful, another as traumatic. That's so true. Yes. And David, you know, I, I have to say, this is Sam, um, that I, I really resonated when I read that section in your book because I, I used the exact same thought experiment um, with our volunteers and, and new staff people when they come on board at our hospice organization to help them understand what we mean by spiritual care and what we mean by the, the role of spirituality and meaning mm-hmm. um, at end of life and use exactly that point that two circumstances can be in all outward respects exactly the same but the experience of the people having it are so different based on what meaning they find in it. Right, oh, exactly. Absolutely. I, I wanted to just say, too, is because both of my children died sudden deaths um, until my mother died four years ago from Alzheimer's and hospice was brought in, I, I will forever sell, sell uh, the praises of hospice care. I don't know what we would have done and the, the, beautiful, the beautiful gentleness um, and the way they cared for my mother. I'll never forget that. So I am so thankful that there is hospice out there. And I love the idea of a hospice doula. Um, I know they've had them for births, and here you have one yes. that is, yes, right. So um, this is, that's very interesting to me. I did not know that, and I think that's just wonderful. So thank you both for all that you do with hospice care. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you know, David, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, your chapter on, uh, this is Katie, by the way, um, your chapter on suicide, um, it spoke, just had a lot of meaning for me. I, I like Kathy, am a suicide survivor. Of My ex-husband passed three years ago by, uh, by suicide. And, and you say in the chapter, a broken mind is a tragedy, not a crime. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, you know, that, that, spoke to me on so many levels and there's this huge like divide between mental illness and addiction versus the you know physical illness um, and that stigma connected there can you you know kind of share mm-hmm. your thoughts on that and, and is that ever going to change and do you see that changing yes and here's how I hope it changes <clears throat> for example I remember talking to my father and my aunt and people who told me, you know, a couple of generations ago that if you had cancer, you were kind of in the shadows. There wasn't walks and you didn't talk openly about cancer. And I had the privilege of being with someone who really wanted to change that, and that was Michael Landon. And when Michael Landon had cancer and we were working with him, he's like, I want to go on The Tonight Show and talk about it. 
And no one had ever done anything like that before. No one had talked openly about having cancer on like an entertainment show. And, Mm. you know, he did for cancer and so many others after him now have done for cancer, what Betty Ford's done for addiction. And my hope is that that is what will happen with, uh, you know, being mentally compromised in the future or death by suicide or addiction, that there's someday in the future we're going to go, can you believe in the old days people used to be ashamed of cancer? Can you believe there was a time people, there was stigma around an illness in your mind like addiction and death by suicide? I mean, that's my hope is that someday we talk about those, like, isn't it crazy we used to have a stigma around that? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. That's true. And that was going to be my next question that Katie brought up. First of all, I want to thank you for having a section on suicide. Um, You know, obviously it's touched my life um, in many ways, but then... You know, just working with people who, uh, parents who lost their children to suicide, but then, you know, now personally it's part of my family's life. And and that's where I saw that, uh, you know, where this meaning came in because what happened after Christopher died is that because I had my daughter Nina died, she was, a, you know, 15-year-old in our close community and our house was filled with people supporting us after her death. I mean, it was, you know, constant. And then my son dying by suicide, there were barely any phone calls. There were barely any um, people at our home. And it was such an unbelievably huge contrast between my daughter's death by a drug driver and my son's by taking his own life. So that was really an eye-opener to me. Um, And actually, the one person that came over to our house was someone we barely knew. And instinctively, you know, which is interesting, she brought over a cherry cream cheese pie. She had no idea. She never met Christopher. That was his favorite dessert. So I thought that was quite interesting, too. Um, But also... um, but that was so apparent to me um, that, wow, here's the stigma right here. Either, you know, they don't know what to say or they think the same thing. This is a crime. Many people still do. I wrote about on Facebook one time about, you know, the use of saying committed suicide versus died by suicide. And I had several people respond back to me, but it is a crime. Mm, and, uh, it, and that was, you know, a very upsetting to me too so i it became my mission david to change the help change the language of suicide by you know people saying died by suicide died of suicide even you know took their own life this is real but committed has such a, a connotation to it of as you said a crime and mm-hmm. i really really appreciate that you brought that up in the book um because you're doing or, the same thing, helping change the language. Right. Or we talk about, you know, oh, her uncle was a suicide. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. Was her aunt was mm-hmm. her aunt a pancreatic cancer? I mean, <laughs> exactly. no, that's right. Her, I saw her, I her, say her, that. Yes. 
I say you know, that all the uncle time. Was, her uncle was Jim, who died by suicide. Her mm-hmm. aunt was Sue, mm-hmm. who died by pancreatic cancer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, unfortunately, we do see that all the time. I wish that, you know, what happened to you, Kathy, wasn't common, but we know if a loved one dies by suicide, you get so many less calls, you get less casseroles, your funerals, you know, get less support, less attendance. It's across the board. You know, we think it's contagious. Why should we go? Because they did this to themselves and all those things mm-hmm. that we just know are not true. Right, right. Um and yes, it was, it was quite eye-opening. Plus, he was a police officer uh, for the state of Minnesota, a huge police force. And, you know, it wasn't that he was killed in the line of duty, although in a sense he was because he had PTSD. He was an undercover police officer. Um, but that was the other thing, too. Boy, they, you know, the police chief was there, but he wouldn't talk to us. So it was uh, very... It was a real eye-opener, too. Um, you know, I'd heard about it, but then I experienced it myself. Absolutely. And I think one thing I just want to make sure that people know is, you know, we're talking about this, and beneath everything we say, there's so much hard work to this for the person at grief. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I even knew when I did this book that, like, it's not as simple as just reading a book and everything will be better, um, that that's not going to happen. But it can be a comfort. And one of the other things I did is I put together a free online course for anyone who buys the book anywhere. And so anyone who hears this later, if you want to go to sixstage.com, S-I-X-T-H, stage, S-T-A-G-E dot com, there's a way you can get that free class with the book wherever you get it. Because I know how hard this is for people, that they can find resources there and also resources at grief.com, which is my site, where there's tons of online classes and no one's ever turned away for the online classes for a lack of funds. I really want to make sure that help is there for anyone who wants it. That's that's wonderful. That's beautiful. Thank you. So as we wrap up, David, I'm going to turn it to you to any final thoughts. Well, I think that, you know, I hope for people listening that they are um, understanding that the reality is no one else will ever understand your grief. I mean, we want our grief to be witnessed. We want our grief to be seen. But no one will know the loss we've gone through. No one will get it. And at the end of the day, it really is our job to get it and honor it. And I think that my hope is that in the pain that so many people live with, that they can find a little meaning that helps them on this journey, that will help them smile again and laugh again in a way that honors their loved one. You know, sometimes when I use the word healing, people go, I don't want to heal. And I go, why not? And they <laughs> will we'll, we'll dive in and we'll find out that they think healing is forgetting. And we are never going to forget those who have died. They are completely unforgettable forever and ever. And yet we can have a life that's meaningful, that honors them. And that is possible 
for all of us to find a meaning and to also release that idea that there's some loyalty in staying forever in pain. You know, the pain is there. I can't take it away, but I don't want that extra suffering that people sometimes just think about, oh, I would be disloyal if I ever smiled again. You know, our loved ones were given a life that got cut too short. No matter when they die, we always want more. And to instead of going, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in pain in honor of them, to go, I'm going to live a life. You know, I always think about a part of our loved ones, you know, when I think about a loved one dying, a part of us died with them. But a part of them lives on in us. And how can we honor that part that lives within us? Yeah. So those are just a few thoughts there, and I hope that people will find some of them helpful and explore ways that they can find meaning and let this book be a conversation starter and a gift for others and something we uh, begin to find healing in our lives. Thank you all for taking the time to join this conversation today. I hope that it touches many people, many lives. Uh, For information about the organizations that are on or for more information about David's book and where to buy it, you could visit our website at friendshealthconnection.org. And you could also see other podcasts and recordings, both past and upcoming. Thank you all, and thanks for joining us. And David, thank you for your incredible book. Oh, thank all of you. I really appreciate all of your work. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you all. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for thank your you, book. David. Thank you. It's a wonderful contribution. So thankful to be able to, absolutely.